we search for the same answers But you're asking the wrong questions Ain't it true? You're wondering why bad things Only happen to other people on the news It's cause we're Hello and welcome to Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, the podcast chock full of natural goodness, dusted with a sprinkle of conservation and offering a tasty morsel of good chat on the side, just on just on the side there, maybe on its own little plate. I'm Tom the Blowfish Herd, the world's only heavy metal marine biologist, and I thank you for joining me for this brand new series of the Wake Up and Smell the Coffee podcast. In this series, we're going to be looking at some of the incredible ecosystems that we have on planet Earth, these wonderful interconnected webs of life, and see what they're about, learn some cool facts about them, but also learn what's giving them a bit of a kicking and see what we can't do about it. Oh, yes, indeed. So this time around today, we are going to be looking at corals. Oh, yes, we'll get stuck straight in, shall we? With this wonderful fact, corals are animals. Yes, it is true, ladies and gentlemen. They may look like stones. And indeed, for a long, long time, corals were thought to be plants. They were first in, uh, classified even as minerals. And then they got classified as plants. <laughs> and they were still, in fact, classed as a plant until the 18th century. But no, corals are animals. They are anthrozoans. Oh yes, big words. We're big words already here on this Wake Up and Smell the Coffee podcast, so you know, strap in, it's going to be a long day. (laughs) Now corals don't move, but they do move, (laughs) if that doesn't immediately make no sense whatsoever. So uh, the coral themselves, once they have settled onto a reef, and we'll, we'll come into that a little bit later, they are fixed in that position, they are sessile. But They are animals, and so they do still move. And I really recommend, if you get the chance, you can find on the internet just so many different videos of time lapses of coral movement. Yes, they they don't move quickly, but they are incredibly active little things. (laughs) A A bit of a paradox there. They don't move, but they do move. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, corals first appeared on planet Earth about 530 million years ago. So that's a long, long time ago. (laughs) Very long time. If you think that sharks turned up about 450 million years, and, and they even turned up before plants and flowers and trees. So corals were one of the first complex life forms to exist. But they've had quite a mixed history in the timeline of planet Earth. So they they may have been around before, even sharks. But it does look, uh, as we check the fossil record, that corals actually died out. They became extinct, if you will. Because the corals that we see now didn't appear in the fossil record until about 300 million years later. So, you know, and, and then there are gaps as well. So, very strange stuff, you know, that whatever happened, some sort of cataclysmic event, or or who knows, corals went extinct, but the form and function of them brought them back into what we see today, which is fantastic. Now, they are animals, yes, we've covered that, but a friend of mine always calls them plantimals, which I think is, is a great way of describing how they live, because the coral itself lives in a symbiosis with dinoflagellates called symbodium, or you may know it as zooxanthellae, okay? These are small, single-celled organisms which use sunlight to create food. Plants-ish. They're not technically plants, but working pretty much the same as plants. So they're using good old-fashioned chlorophyll, you know, that, that fantastic compound that means that grass is green you know it absorbs light and through some fantastic metabolic magic they can create sugars and they can create oxygen okay so plantimals that's a good way to think about corals because while they have the the plant and I'm, I'm doing air quotes here while they have the plant side of them working away making sugars they also hunt 
being animals, they are heterotrophic. That's what we are. We're heterotrophs. We have to eat to survive. And so corals are hunters. And they feed the same way as their other anthrozoan relatives. So the jellyfish, the anemones, what do we know about these guys? They sting, don't they? They use stinging cells to catch prey. And corals are exactly the same. The vast majority of species will feed at night. Some will feed during the day. But what they do is they puff up their flesh with seawater and they extend their stinging tentacles and just catch whatever's going. Maybe it's a little bit of tasty plankton. It might be a fish egg or or a tiny little crustacean. But they are very active hunters. Now, coral reefs themselves grow in the thinnest slice of environment if you will on planet earth they need such specific conditions to exist and anyone who has ever attempted to keep a coral tank or a marine tank in their home will know just how hard it is water conditions light the you know ph nutrient content calcium content it all has to be so very very perfect you shift a few degrees either way, you get too much of one thing or another, and, and bang, that's it. No coral reefs, okay? So when you do actually have this perfect set of conditions, a reef itself will start with just one egg. It's called a planula, actually, and it's essentially it's a hairy egg, if you will. So corals themselves, they breed. You get corals that will release sperm, corals that release eggs, and corals that release just packets of both egg and sperm together, okay? I'm sure many of you have seen the fabulous footage that you'll see in natural history programs of these mass spawning events. Well, when an egg and a sperm come together, they form this hairy egg. That's what it is, the planula. So it's covered in little cilia, these tiny beating hairs that allow it to swim. The planula then swims and swims and swims, to be honest, it's, it's mainly forced by the current. But if it finds an area of rock that meets all these incredibly specific conditions, it stops being this swimming hairy egg and instead metamorphoses into a tiny coral polyp. And boom, you know, a reef is born. But it is such a fine margin. Coral reefs cover 0.01% of the ocean okay that is that is how fine this area this this thin crust that they can exist in is all right so these planula so many are lost every time there's this one of these mass spawning events so many countless billions no doubt are lost because they cannot find the perfect habitat now we also do get deep water corals and this is something we certainly see in the uk a lot as well now Scientists have found corals all the way down to 2,000 metres, so that's two kilometres or more down into the darkness of the ocean. And here, these corals are entirely heterotrophic, so they're always feeding. There's no sunlight down there, so they've got nice big stinging tentacles, and they're going to catch whatever they can that's going past. But living in this cold, dark, and often very nutrient-poor. You know, there is some wonderful life in the deep ocean, and no doubt we'll talk about this later in this podcast series, but it's it can be slim pickings. So these corals, these deep water corals, are incredibly, incredibly slow-growing. It's a good chance that some of the oldest organisms on the planet will be found in deep water reefs. Now, when you're a uh, planula has finally decided to settle and it's transformed itself into a polyp. It can take five years or more for the signs of a, a real reef, something you would recognise as a reef, to appear. Otherwise, it just kind of still looks like a, a bit of grubby underwater rock. But in just 50 or 60 years, you can have a really incredible ecosystem. You can have something that is very much a reef. So there are some wonderful places in the South Pacific where a very terrible thing happened, of course, the the events of World War II. America and Japan fought in some very, very, very nasty conditions and battles over in the South Pacific. And therefore, there are a lot of aircraft, tanks, jeeps. There's one place known as Truck Lagoon because guess what? There's a lot of trucks and tanks there. 
And so all these sunken battleships, these sunken tanks, this, that and the other, they've been there since the 1940s. And yet they are now these fabulous, fabulous reef systems. So while it might seem a very slow start, once a reef gets going, it can really grow on anything that gives it an option. As long as it can, it gives it a platform in that very, very thin crust that it needs, you know, the right light, the right water, the right pH and everything else, it will really get going. So when you've got your reef, you have two types of coral. You get the soft corals and you get the hard corals. So we'll talk about the soft corals first. So a good example of the soft corals, one that we find around the coasts of the UK, are dead man's fingers. So they are, as the name suggests, soft. They are sort of uh, spongy, they can flow and move with the current, and certainly things like dead man's fingers are found in more turbulent, colder, deeper, but also more productive waters. Because while you, you know, you go two kilometres down into the deep dark ocean, yeah, it's a little bit barren around there, anyone that's gone for a swim in the higher latitudes during spring and summer will see those beautiful green waters that are packed full of plankton that's food that's coral food so these soft corals that ensue the idea of just using sunlight to give them the vast majority of their food they say no i'm going to be a big hunter i'm going to get stuck in and they just get those tentacles out and feed but they are still very very colorful and they form very important reefs while they might not form the thick limestone aggregates that we know of coral reefs like the Great Barrier Reef and Ningaloo Reef and, and other such uh, reefs that have been found through geolo- ge- uh, geological time. Oh, that's a tough word to say. They do still form a hard reef. So the, the, the tissues themselves in these soft corals contain tiny little toothpicks it's a great way of describing them they're tiny tiny toothpicks called spicules and they are made of calcium carbonate okay limestone so these little spicules act as as um you know supporting rods inner scaffolding if you will for these soft corals it still allows them to bend in you know because the water is very turbulent or there's you know a lot of wave action or whatnot but it also holds them together. It's something for the tissues to physically attach to. So as these corals grow, more of these spicules are deposited, and we do get a physical reef growing from soft corals. But of course, it is the hard corals which form, as I say, these wonderful, enormous limestone aggregations. All right. Now, in the hard corals, there are two major types. We call them small polyp stony corals and large polyp stony corals. Both form these thick bodies of calcium carbonate limestone. When you see on, well, whatever whatever show it is, when you see corals on, uh, on TV, they really do look stony. They look very brittle. They, they seem to have nothing on them. That is very much just the skeleton that you're seeing there. That is the hard skeleton of which the flesh is pulled very, very tight over the top because they're usually filmed during the day. And as we've already said, they're, they're not all fleshed up so they can feed. So you get an idea immediately of the skeleton of these animals, the bodies that are of this calcium carbonate, this limestone. Now, the SPS coral... That's the kind of one that you see that they look like staghorns or antlers. And indeed, the, those are two different types of coral there. You know, you have, there's antler coral and there's staghorn, there's elk horn, there's all these different names. But they are the branching corals. They look like little trees, like antlers. And they are very fast growing. Well, <laughs> I mean, they're fast growing in coral terms, you know, uh, a good you know, a good few millimetres uh, a month, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, but they're usually found in the higher energy areas. So their physical form allows them to withstand waves breaking on them. It allows them to withstand storm action. So we usually see these corals at the top of reefs or at the edge of reefs where the ocean first meets the front of the reef. Now the LPS, the large polyp stony corals, they are slower growing. These are things that are, you know, they're big and fat. 
They uh, a classic one that you may know, or this may jog your imagination, brain coral. You've probably seen these. They're like humps, and they look like brains. Very well-named. These are much slower-growing corals. They are far more badass, though. They are capable of, of chomping down pretty big things. Some of these corals are capable even of, of catching fish using their stinging tentacles. And they really are found away from the reef edge, away from the breaking waves, more towards the lagoons and the the inner calmer areas of the reef. But because they grow so massive, they're the ones that really put down these formidable structures that allow reefs to become so very huge. I mean, the Great Barrier Reef is visible from space. It's the largest organic structure on the planet. You know, that, that, that's serious work. Slow, but serious. I like it. Now, one of the ways that corals can establish themselves, if you will, is through fighting. Yes, corals physically fight with each other. Because if you've got this fast-growing staghorn or this fast-growing plate coral, and guess what? Plate corals look like plates, growing out on the edge of the reef, but the reef's starting to get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and the edge of the reef isn't quite as close to the dynamic waves as it once was, and a brain coral has started to kind of muscle in a bit, what's going to happen? That You know, you need that brain coral to own that area, and you need the staghorns to kind of, you know, do one. Well, you've got these two corals, they're going to grow. and No, because corals will use their stinging tentacles to physically attack other corals. In fact, again, coming back to anyone out there who's a reef keeper will know just how dangerous it can be to get two corals too close to each other in a marine tank. They send out these long, sweeping, stinging threads that will just blitzkrieg the skin and flesh off an opposing coral. And again, in the case of the LPS, they're so much nastier than the SPS because once a reef has grown enough that the, you know, the reef edge isn't quite the hardcore battleground that it was, the LPS can move in, they can easily wipe out the established SPS and then they can put down their own foothold. So it is incredible to see that these slow-growing animals actually live such dynamic lifestyles. Now, I spoke briefly as well, didn't I, uh, before about the mass spawning events. Well, these are very, very, very important. Not obviously just to the corals, which are breeding. I mean, that's kind of, you know, fairly obvious there. But also hugely important to the animals that live on a reef. So the reason why corals do this mass spawning is because if they were just one coral at a time was to release its eggs, they just get munched. You know, you would just get a, a shoal of fish would just come in, polish off these eggs in no time flat, and that coral would not do very well, <laughs> to put it mildly. So by reproducing on a reef-wide scale, this mass flow of eggs and sperm you're guaranteed that something's going to get past it. It's the same thing that we see with sea turtles. They do this mass breeding, and then you get this flood of turtle hatchlings appearing, which just overwhelm predators. Exactly the same for the corals. But even so, you know, eggs and sperm are packed full of nutrients. They are so vital that there are animals, in fact, the largest fish in the ocean, the whale shark, relies on the very specific timing of, in, in for example, Ningaloo Reef. The whale sharks will frequent Ningaloo Reef at the same time every year at exactly the point where the corals do their mass breeding event so that they can feed on the coral spawn. So not only have you got this huge event making sure there's going to be more corals you know, appearing on the reef or travelling elsewhere... The reproduction of the corals also plays a key part in the life of many, many different fish species. The whale shark, this wonderful creature, being the uh, most charismatic and perhaps the most well-known of those. Now, you've got some very distinct areas of corals around planet Earth. You have the corals in the Pacific and then the corals in the Caribbean. 
So the corals in the Pacific, you know, here you have this beautiful, huge ocean, the Pacific. If you, if you take a globe, spin it round so you're looking at the Pacific, you will see that a full third of planet Earth is the Pacific Ocean. That's amazing. So the corals that live in the Pacific, they are incredibly diverse because they've had a chance to find so many different niches and evolve into all these different niches and spread as well. They're not being contained. They can move across whole oceans. So throughout Polynesia, uh, around Indonesia, oh, this whole area is the coral triangle. Okay, They have all these wonderful, wonderful species there. And there is a huge diversity, not just of corals, but of fish as well. Now, in the Caribbean, where we see the perfect conditions, this thin crust needed for corals to establish, well, because the Caribbean is essentially a cul-de-sac, I mean, again, look at it at a globe, look at it on a map, you'll see that the Caribbean exists in this circle between the south of North America and the, the sort of backstopped by Central America, and then along the bottom, you've got the top of South America. You know, it's held in. It can't mix as well. So the corals that we see in the Caribbean there's less diversity. There have been less ecological niches for them to explore and evolve into, and there's been less mixing and spreading of genetic material. It, it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, if you really wanted to go for the full Mardi Gras of corals, you've got to get yourself out to the Pacific Ocean. Now, I've been talking loads and loads and loads about corals themselves. I could keep on going about them, but it's also worth mentioning the animals that live on them. I mentioned briefly the whale sharks coming in, feeding during the time where corals mass spawn. But of course, there are animals that make coral reefs their home throughout their entire lives. You have a huge abundance of these incredibly well-known fish, I mean, I hate to name names here, but of course the clownfish from that very famous film. Clownfish found on coral reefs. You, know, you will find countless different species of blenny that can exist in all these tiny little different habitats because, as we've discussed, coral reefs create such a huge habitat. And one thing as well that perhaps a lot of people can miss is we see coral reefs, this beautiful blue, crystal clear water, and you know the, all the life and the, the the fish swimming all, and you think, oh, this is abundant and gorgeous. Actually, it's not. Coral reefs exist in water which we would call oligotrophic. Okay, it does not have much of anything in it. So it's only thanks to the coral kind of fighting its way and carving a, a little place for itself in the thin crust of life that it can fit using those symbiotic uh, algae, those symbiotic zooxanthellae with them, using the symbiotic zooxanthellae to take the sun's energy and make food from it. And it's, it's kind of from there that they actually start themselves to become a suitable habitat. Because if there weren't corals there, there certainly wouldn't be fish there. So you see these areas and you think, oh, there must be so much going on. But actually, it's only going on because of the coral. And that's what's driven evolution to create so many unique animals which are found only on coral reefs. You will find things like cleaner fish. You'll get cleaner shrimp as well. These creatures that have this amazingly complex relationship, not only with themselves to make sure that they can adequately clean other larger fish and say turtles or even whales but also they need to communicate with the animals that they're cleaning so a small blue street cleaner ass for example might need to communicate with a shark and we see that we see forms of communication we then have things like manta rays these huge huge creatures which are also the most intelligent fish in the sea they come to coral reefs not just to feed, but to be groomed by the, the cleaner rats that we've just mentioned, but also to socialise and to communicate with each other. They can do that because the reefs are there. The, I mean, I could, I could list off so many uh, individual species of fish that we find there. It would boggle your mind, and it, all it would do is prove how... Um, how essential coral reefs are. But I, I want to pick one particular fish uh, out of the mass. 
I want to pick one particular fish out of the masses because they have a very interesting <laughs> role in the coral reefs. I'm giggling because it is funny. So parrotfish, okay? Parrotfish, coral reefs, yep, they're synonymous with each other. You get plenty of parrotfish around coral reefs. And parrotfish themselves physically eat coral, okay? They go around crunching up coral, and what they're doing is that as they crunch the coral, their guts digest the flesh of the coral. They'll digest the zooxanthellae that's in the coral tissues. So they eat the whole thing, and they let their guts do sort of the equivalent of a... Uh, it's like when you do your recycling, and you've got to put... you know, you know The metal goes in that one, the plastic goes in that one. That's what the guts are doing inside the, the parrotfish. It's stripping off all the good organics, and then it's left with that coral skeleton, the calcium carbonate, the limestone... That is not absorbed by the parrotfish. Instead, as it is crushed inside the parrotfish and ground down and it becomes a sand, it is pooped back out. So all those beautiful white sandy beaches that you see on commercials and adverts for holidays that you see on terrible terrible shows like love island where they're wandering up and down those white sand beaches that's poo that's parrotfish poo (laughs) miles and miles and miles of parrotfish poo but it's also starfish poo and sea urchin poo and sea cucumber poo there are so many different animals that gently graze on the corals graze on the reef break down those hard structures and release it as fine sand you might think oh this isn't good they're eating the corals but in fact it is <laughs> it is the poo of all these animals that create these incredible islands that we see attached to coral reefs and those islands then become a hugely important habitat themselves for things like certain seabirds, like mutton birds, and uh, we suddenly see things like sea turtles appearing to lay their eggs on these islands that weren't previously there, but have existed, or come into existence rather, thanks to the parrotfish and their chomping, along with other animals. So, you know, wow, you really do have this huge almost mind-blowing interconnectivity i mean i know i know this game all right i i know these animals i i know this ecosystem and even i when i'm talking about it it's it's just great it's just amazing to discuss because every time you say something you see all the different strands of conversation that peel off from that or how this can affect this and that can affect that And I hope that just in there, you've seen that, wow, you know, these coral reefs, they are more than just this picture-perfect image of bright colours and bright fish, that they are intrinsically linked to our oceans. And in fact, they are intrinsically linked to the health of our oceans as well. And now, now we get to the conservation side of things, all right? Because coral reefs around the world are in really, really big trouble, okay? There's lots of different things affecting them. Uh, I mean, just strap in, all right? This is this is the bit that makes you feel a bit, Ugh, all right? But strap in, don't worry. We, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. Uh, earlier this year, the Great Barrier Reef, the largest reef on planet Earth, uh, structure so big it can be seen from space, that it's the largest organic structure on planet Earth, a study from Australia showed that 50% of its coral is dead. 50%. Ladies and gentlemen, very often, and in no way am I talking down these charities or the people involved in the conservation of these charities, no doubt we'll even talk about some of them during this this podcast series, but very often we see this thing of, oh, the Amazon rainforest has lost an area the size of, you know, the size of three football pitches. You go, yeah, that is a tragedy. Of course it's a tragedy. But here, we've lost 50% of the largest organic structure on planet earth where is its advert where is its you know, its demo its uh its protest okay we can forget so quickly about the problems that the ocean faces because it's not there in our faces and we we you know what you out of sight out of mind that's the phrase isn't it so yeah be aware coral reefs 
big, big trouble. I, I mentioned before, they only cover 0.01% of the oceans, all right? But they are known to host 25%, a quarter of all known marine life. So 0.01% of the oceans, but hosting 25%, a quarter of, of all marine life. And there have been other studies which have suggested that they may play a key role in nearly 90% of all marine species. So that might be like the whale shark that has to come to the coral reef to feed. It might be uh, an animal, say, that it starts its life on the coral reef and then moves out into the oceans. It might be something like the humpback whale that comes to coral reefs to breed. You know, there are so many connections that this tiny, tiny, tiny little speck has in the lives of this blue planet, okay? And think about it. It'd almost be like you say, okay, about 90% of marine life has something to do with these coral reefs that's like asking 90 percent of the population of london to casually pass through i don't know keithley in west yorkshire <laughs> or you know i mean or 90 percent of the population of planet earth of of us humans to pass through i don't know glastonbury <laughs> I mean, you just, it doesn't, you think, what? You know, it's such a huge, huge thing to get your head around. All right. But that is how important coral reefs are. That's how vital they are. Now, I think a very famous uh, problem that they've faced uh, has been the crown of thorns starfish. So, this is a starfish which has, and we've got to be absolutely clear here, crown of thorns starfish has a very important role on coral reefs. They eat coral. That's what they do. All right. Now, we already know that the parrotfish eats coral and he's a good lad. Well, so is the crown of thorns. So, crown of thorns starfish, when they're in sensible numbers, that's the key here, they feed on corals that become too abundant. So it's thanks to crown of thorn starfish feeding on corals that are kind of overgrowing and becoming a bit pesky that allow other corals to come back. They find balance on the reef by eating the numerous corals, okay? The problem is that when you have pollution, often in the form of fertilizer, that you get huge numbers of crown of thorn starfish, all right? And they go out and they just then eat every coral. So that's a big, big issue, all right? And believe it or not, Australia, there are people in Australia, companies in Australia, which are still dumping toxic sludge onto the Great Barrier Reef. Sediment is still being dumped onto the Great Barrier Reef, even now. It's still allowed to happen. And that sediment, again, it contains fertilizers, and it can just cause these huge blooms of starfish, all right? It really, really is mad that we're fueling so directly something that is having a, a, an immediate impact on the coral reefs. But looking at something that's had, having more of a long-term impact on coral reefs, you've got to look at, of course, global warming. All right, this isn't, this isn't good. And for many of you, you know, it's not news either. Global warming is having a big impact around the world, hence global part of the global warming. But when it comes to coral reefs, because the temperatures of the ocean are increasing, it's shifting that thin crust that the corals need to live. Okay, It's shifting it away from them. And so global warming causes coral bleaching. This is something I'm sure many of you have heard of. Coral bleaching is, is spoken about quite often. And essentially, again, coral bleaching is actually a normal event. So those symbiotic zooxanthellae that we were talking about, the parts of the coral that help feed them, taking in the sunlight and making the sugars and generally just you know being good lads and lasses. Well, if they get too hot, they get a little bit carried away, okay? Because it's a metabolic thing that's happening. You know, it's a chemical reaction. You make it too hot, you make too much of it, okay? And as part of that chemical reaction, as well as making sugar, they're making oxygen. But too much oxygen in the cells of the coral actually starts to irritate them, and it starts to damage the coral cells. So when the water gets too warm, and when the symbiotes start working too hard, corals eject them. They bleach. 
They fire the symbiotes out, which have all the colour. That's what you see. You see the colour of the symbiotes. They fire those out. And all then that you can see is the white limestone skeleton underneath. This is totally normal. But what isn't normal is the fact that historically, when coral bleaching occurred, it would have happened for two or three days. There would have been two or three days a year when the water temperature got a little bit hot and the corals chucked out the zooxanthellae. And then after, you know, a few days, the water's cooled down, you know, temperatures have have come down enough for the corals to go, ah, you know, all's forgiven. And they will then reabsorb zooxanthellae from the water and they crack on. No problem. What we're seeing with global warming is that temperatures aren't staying high for two or three days. They're staying high for two or three weeks. They're staying high for months. And this means that the corals spit out the zooxanthellae, but then because the temperature never drops down low enough for them to reabsorb the zooxanthellae, they starve. And so you just get vast swathes of coral reefs going white, bleaching, and then dying. That is horrendous you know it is it's coral genocide or in fact it's coral mass suicide really because these animals are getting rid of the zooxanthellae themselves hoping desperately that the temperature will come down they can take them back in but global warming has kept temperatures high and we're seeing mass bleaching events year in year out on coral reefs it's just awful stuff plastics of course have played a role in the impact on coral reefs as you know obviously big pieces of plastic just get stuck and being stuck they might just break the coral or or physically damage it but it's the microplastics that affect the tissues of the coral themselves so these tiny little microplastics as well as physically blocking the corals and binding to their tissues and stopping them from doing their job well these little microplastics also act as chemical sponges so they can pick up and let off harmful chemicals pesticides for example or heavy metals so if you've got one of these little poison plastic sponges in contact with coral tissue again how many times have we said this coral needing that very thin specific crust to survive it will just wipe them out not good all right not good fishing's played its part i don't really need to explain this you know if you take a trawler and you smash through a coral reef. That ain't good. That isn't, that's not good. But then you do get smaller boats that are just fishing in the reef area, stripping away these important fish species that protect the corals. You know, they might graze on the algae. They might keep down predators. You know, we talked about the crown of thorn starfish. Well, there are animals that eat the crown of thorn starfish. You remove those, too many crown of thorns, and you see where we're going. Certainly in the Pacific... There's a huge problem with dynamite and cyanide fishing. So dynamite fishing, do I need to explain this? You're you're dropping a stick of dynamite or a homemade explosive onto a bit of reef. It just destroys swathes and swathes of reef ecosystem. And any fish caught in the concussive blast just float up to the surface. They can then just be scooped up, sold for food, eaten themselves. With cyanide fishing, uh, the fishermen make up bottles of, well, cyanide. (laughs) You know, the clue's clues in the name here. It's like Ron Seal, but really, really bad. (laughs) So with cyanide fishing, once they've made up these bottles of cyanide, they're squirted into the nooks and crannies of the coral reefs, and the fish just come out gasping for for air, just struggling to, to survive. And then they're very quickly netted and put in bags. Now, the fishermen, when, if they're doing cyanide fishing, they won't eat the fish because they've been poisoned with cyanide. But the fish will actually start to recover. And so quite often, cyanide fishermen sell their fish to the aquarium trade. Right. So if you are interested in keeping marine fish, you need to be very, very, very sure of where your fish come from. Because it was some, there's some terrible statistics suggesting that 90% of the reefs in Indonesia have been affected by either dynamite or cyanide fishing right so that's been driven by the aquarium tr- by the aquarium trade that we have here 
in the Western world. Uh, finally, <laughs> I can't even believe that this exists, but it does. You get the aggregate industry. You know, hardcore and tarmac and cement and all that kind of stuff. Reefs are physically chewed up to make hardcore, to make roads and pavements and drives and what? <laughs> are you serious? Come on. All right, so uh, there there are some really, really obvious and frankly atrocious things happening to coral reefs that that, that can be fixed so very, very quickly. There's then also a new one that's popped up that's uh, biologically quite interesting, but also not good, which is lionfish have found their way into the Caribbean. Now, lionfish are native to Southeast Asia, so the Pacific, right? And there are there are plenty of things that eat lionfish out in the South Pacific, so they're fine. They live in balance. That's all good. But nothing eats lionfish in the Caribbean, and no one quite knows how they got over there. There are some fantastic stories about, oh, well, it was an aquarium, and a wave, tidal wave hit it, and it lost its... You know, it lost its lionfish or... Oh, God. There are so many stories. You know, people have just chucked them in from Florida when they've got fed up of keeping them in their marine tanks and all that jazz. However they've got there, they're in the Caribbean to stay. Now, because they don't have any native predators, lionfish, which are the fish equivalent of vacuum cleaners with fins, once they move onto a reef, they will just stay on that reef and eat everything that they can fit into their mouth until there's nothing left. And of course, there are so many fish which look after the corals. They graze on the algae that grow on the corals, keeping the corals free of of this choking seaweed. Well, you remove those fish, because the lionfish have eaten them, and then the corals get covered in algae. Corals get covered in algae, they die, and the reef dies too. So loads of science and conservation actually is now happening in the Caribbean to try and control the lionfish populations, even trying to get predators in the Caribbean to start feeding on lionfish. I've actually been part of that myself, which has been, well, it was quite interesting to put it mildly, but that is a story for another time. Now, wow. Woo, that was a lot, wasn't it? That that was just a lot of doom, a big pile of doom doom i do apologize ladies and gentlemen Uh, it's the truth you know it is the truth and we're not going to sugarcoat it here but what we are going to do is tell you how you can make a difference because that's the point everything i've mentioned there we can stop we can help we can make a difference so really easy way to help coral reefs support a charity all right you can do as much as you like you can sign up and pay a monthly membership Or maybe just sign up to a newsletter so that you can sign petitions when they come through. Or you can see what's happening and you can talk to your friends and your colleagues and and be aware about what's going on. Supporting a charity doesn't mean giving them tons and tons and tons of money. It means supporting them, talking about their cause to your your neighbours, your work colleagues, posting it on your socials, you know, giving a damn, all right? So do that. Really simple. We can all do that today. Very, very easy. Next, don't buy any coral products or sundries, okay? You can go into so many shops that have maybe coral necklaces or, uh, you know, they'll have corals which have been dried and you can put them into your bathroom so they look oh so chic. Just don't, okay? Just don't. If you happen to be in one of these areas, you know, the Caribbean or South Pacific, and you see something dead and dried and washed upon the beach, then fine. You've got a little memento there. But take a little small piece. Don't don't be a dick. <laughs> don't be a dick and take half the beach with you. If there's a small memento you can take home, great. Don't start farming corals off the beach because those coral skeletons will eventually make their way back into the ocean and start forming an important substrate for yet more reefs and more life to grow on all right so just be considerate but whatever you do never pay any money for any dead coral products or sundries all right i've already mentioned if you keep a marine tank don't buy dodgy corals don't buy corals off some bloke on facebook or some bloke off the internet says oh i've got this rare thing or this rare thing they might even be illegal 
okay? There are a lot of corals which are controlled under the CITES convention that people shouldn't have. So don't buy dodgy corals. Report people who are selling these dodgy corals. You wouldn't allow someone on Facebook to be selling a Siberian tiger cub, so don't allow them to sell a rare scolomaya, for example, all right? You know, if you and if you do keep a marine tank, you don't want to buy dodgy corals, good on you. That's how you should be. But also check with your reputable retailers. Where are their corals from? Ask them. Have they been farmed? Have they been aquacultured? Where do they get their fish from? Have they been farmed? Have they been aquacultured? Have they been caught using cyanide fishing? Always worth asking. All right. Don't buy dodgy marine stuff. Simple as that. Divers, scuba divers, snorkelers, that kind of thing. When you're on holiday and uh, you're, you know, you're out on these these reefs, be considerate. There are some terrible images on the internet of people that have gone diving on coral reefs and scrawled their names onto living coral. You know, they're not chalkboards; they're animals. Don't do that. You wouldn't tattoo your name onto the back of an elephant at Whipsnade. So. Don't scroll your name onto a coral. Be considerate. You know, report poor operators. There are some real cowboys out there. Report them. Let them, you know, say, oi, this isn't good enough. It's down to us. We're the people that can make the difference here. No, you know, don't think that someone else has got power. You got the power. Oh, yeah. Now, this is a new one, which is really quite interesting, actually. Reef safe sun cream. Hmm. There were some studies done showing that people were putting on so much sun cream, which, of course, you should use, protect yourself from UV rays and all that jazz, but actually that certain chemicals in certain types of sun cream are you know, really quite devastating to coral, coral reefs. We talked before, didn't we, about the tiny bits of pollution that can come off plastic particles. Well, what about the pollution that comes off sun cream? So think on that. You can now get, and it should be clearly marked, reef safe sun cream please use it again if you're out in these wonderful places it's it's no hassle it's no hassle just buy reef safe sun cream and you're making a difference then and there all right try and protect the oceans you know (laughs) think about think about you where you're getting your fish from okay think about how much plastics you're you're smashing through think about what pollution you're creating, all that kind of stuff. I know that might seem like a bit of an umbrella wishy-washy thing, but we don't need one or two people doing everything perfectly. We need a thousand people doing a thousand different things imperfectly. You know, and, and so look at your life. Can you cut down your plastics? Yes, no, maybe, who knows? Look at it. Make a difference. You know, Look at your, your, your fish. Maybe you're buying the wrong kind of fish. You can change that. You know, can you change your energy provider at home so you're on uh, one that's using green energy? You can change that. You can make these little differences, and I promise you, when they're all bound together, they'll make a huge, huge difference. It's the smallest stones that start the avalanche. Never forget that. Never forget it. Uh, And part of that as well is petitioning lawmakers and governments coming back to what I was saying about supporting a charity, okay? If you get something through that says, please sign this because it's going to your local MP or your local councillor or it's going to the government for whatever, do it. If you believe in that cause, do it. It's a signature, but it makes a difference, all right? So there you go. There's, we've got loads of ways there, loads and loads and loads of ways that we can save our coral reefs. And, you know, let's finish on a high reefs can come back and they do come back all right plenty of studies have shown that where reefs have been left alone and allowed to recover they've come back in droves and they brought the biodiversity back with them so loads of different things have gone on where we've had artificial reefs that have been set up anything from sinking old ships which act then as anchor points for new coral planula to actually growing corals in fish tanks in labs and attaching them to ceramic blocks and planting them so they act as this kind of starter satellite reef you know it works it works and they they will come back there's even been some recent science showing that playing specific sounds of what is dubbed a healthy reef underwater will bring fish to an area 
because they think there's a reef there. And as soon as fish come to that area, if there are any corals there, and of course these speakers that play these sounds are placed in areas where the reefs are on a knife edge, as the, the fish come in, they start to feed on the algae that's pushing the coral towards the, this knife edge, and then the algae's gone, and the reef recovers. It is amazing, okay? It is absolutely amazing how quickly a coral reef can come back when it's just given a chance. There's some fabulous science going on in Florida at uh, the uh, MOTE Labs, Moat Labs University in Florida. There's some fabulous stuff going on at the Florida Moat Labs uh, where they are working with corals and prepping them for the future. So they are in a way, like we have bred things like Dachshunds and Alsatians and all these different breeds of dogs, these guys at Florida Moat are working to get corals which don't get rid of their zooxanthellae when it gets too warm. So they're basically super engineering these corals. That would be fabulous. That would mean that reefs could survive bleaching events, okay? Great stuff going on. Also, check out something called Linny, L-I-N-I. This is a, well, it's it's a bit of everything. It's charity, it's industry, it's local community. It's a, a project out in Indonesia where local communities are being, well, they're, they're being pulled away from cyanide fishing and dynamite fishing and being trained and educated to manage and protect reefs. So they're given areas of coastline for them to seed new reefs. They can then harvest the coral and sell it ethically and sustainably to the aquarium trade. They can harvest the fish and sell them ethically and sustainably to the aquarium trade. They're given a livelihood that doesn't involve blowing up bits of reef. That is amazing. Check that out, okay? And science is always going on, always going forward. Very recently, we've just discovered a new part of the Great Barrier Reef, right at the very north, the very northern tip of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, a reef, an isolated reef, that is 500 metres tall. That's taller than the Empire State Building, and that is pretty damn cool. So it just just goes to show, isn't it? We've got this fabulous, wonderful environment. It's sitting there. It's getting a bit of a kicking, but you know what? All we've got to do is a little, little change, and it's going to go great guns. I'll tell you that for free. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I've been waffling on. I do apologise. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back soon with another incredible story from our wonderful world that we live in and how you at home can really make a difference in its protection and its survival. Thank you and good night.